0: chapter 6 of the egoist this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by martin geeson the egoist by george meredith chapter 6 his courtship the world was the principal topic of dissension between these lovers his opinion of the world affected her like a creature threatened with a deprivation of air he explained to his darling that lovers of necessity do loathe the world they live in the world they accept its benefits and assist it as well as they can In their hearts they must despise it, shut it out, That their love for one another may pour in a clear channel, And with all the force they have. They cannot enjoy the sense of security for their love Unless they fence away the world. It is, you will allow, gross. It is a beast. Formerly we thank it for the good we get of it, only we too have an inner temple where the worship we conduct is actually if you would but see it an excommunication of the world we abhor that beast to adore that divinity this gives us our oneness our isolation our happiness this is to love with the soul do you see darling she shook her head She could not see it. She would admit none of the notorious errors of the world, its backbiting, selfishness, coarseness, intrusiveness, infectiousness. She was young. She might, Willoughby thought, have let herself be led. She was not docile. She must be up in arms as a champion of the world. And one saw she was hugging her dream of a romantic world nothing else she spoilt the secret bower song he delighted to tell over to her and how powers of love is love-making to be pursued if we may not kick the world out of our bower and wash our hands of it love that does not spurn the world when lovers curtain themselves is a love is it not so that seems to the unwhipped scoffing world to go slinking into basiations obscurity instead of on a glorious march behind the screen our hero had a strong sentiment as to the policy of scorning the world for the sake of defending his personal pride and to his honour be it said his lady's delicacy the act of scorning put them both above the world said retro satanas so much as a piece of tactics he was highly civilized in the second instance he knew it to be the world which must furnish the dry sticks for the bonfire of a woman's worship he knew too that he was prescribing poetry to his betrothed practicable poetry she had a liking for poetry and sometimes quoted the stuff in defiance of his pursed mouth and pained murmur i am no poet but his poetry of the enclosed and fortified bower without nonsensical rhymes to catch the ears of women appeared incomprehensible to her if not adverse she would not burn the world for him She would not, though a purer poetry is little imaginable, reduce herself to ashes, or incense, or essence, in honour of him, and so by love's transmutation literally be the man she was to marry. She preferred to be herself, with the egoism of women. She said it. She said, I must be myself to be of any value to you, Willoughby he was indefatigable in his lectures on the aesthetics of love frequently for an indemnification to her he had no desire that she should be a loser by ceasing to admire the world he dwelt on his own youthful ideas and his original fancies about the world were presented to her as a substitute for the theme miss middleton bore it well for she was sure that he meant well bearing so well what was distasteful to her she became less well able to bear what she had merely noted in observation before his view of scholarship his manner towards mr vernon whitford of whom her father spoke warmly the rumour concerning his treatment of a miss dale and the country tale of constantia durham sang itself to her in a new key He had no contempt for the world's praises. Mr. Whitford wrote the letters to the county paper, which gained him applause at various great houses, and he accepted it, and betrayed a tingling fright lest he should be the victim of a sneer of the world he contemned recollecting his remarks her mind was afflicted by the something illogical in him that we readily discover when our natures are no longer running free and then at once we yearn for a disputation she resolved that she would one day one distant day provoke it upon what the special point eluded her the world is too huge a client and too pervious too spotty for a girl to defend against a man that something illogical had stirred her feelings more than her intellect to revolt she could not constitute herself the advocate of mr whitford still she marked the disputation for an event to come meditating on it, she fell to picturing Sir Willoughby's face at the first accents of his bride's decided disagreement with him. The picture, once conjured up, would not be laid. He was handsome, so correctly handsome that a slight unfriendly touch precipitated him into caricature. His habitual air of happy pride, of indignant contentment, rather, could easily be overdone surprise when he threw emphasis on it stretched him with the tall eyebrows of a mask limitless under the spell of caricature and in time whenever she was not pleased by her thoughts she had that and not his likeness for the vision of him and it was unjust contrary to her deeper feelings she rebuked herself and as much as her naughty spirit permitted she tried to look on him as the world did, an effort inducing reflections upon the blessings of ignorance. She seemed to herself beset by a circle of imps, hardly responsible for her thoughts. He outshone Mr. Whitford in his behaviour to young Crossjay. She had seen him with the boy, and he was amused, indulgent, almost frolicsome. In contradistinction to Mr. Whitford's tutorly sharpness, he had the English father's tone of a liberal allowance for boys' tastes and pranks, and he ministered to the partiality of the genus for pocket-money. He did not play the schoolmaster, like bookworms who get poor little lads in their grasp. Mr. Whitford avoided her very much. He came to Upton Park on a visit to her father, and she was not particularly sorry that she saw him only at table. He treated her by fits to a level scrutiny of deep-set eyes, unpleasantly penetrating. She had liked his eyes. They became unbearable. They dwelt in the memory as if they had left a phosphorescent line she had been taken by playmate boys in her infancy to peep into hedge-leaves where the mother-bird brooded on the nest and the eyes of the bird in that marvellous dark thick-set home had sent her away with worlds of fancy mr whitford's gaze revived her susceptibility but not the old happy wondering she was glad of his absence after a certain hour that she passed with willoughby A wretched hour to remember. Mr. Whitford had left, and Willoughby came, Bringing bad news of his mother's health. Lady Patton was fast failing. Her son spoke of the loss she would be to him. He spoke of the dreadfulness of death. He alluded to his own death to come, Carelessly, with a philosophical air. "'All of us must go. Our time is short.' very she assented it sounded like want of feeling if you lose me clara but you are strong willoughby i may be cut off to-morrow do not talk in such a manner it is as well that it should be faced i cannot see what purpose it serves should you lose me my love willoughby oh the bitter pang of leaving you dear willoughby you are distressed your mother may recover let us hope she will i will help to nurse her i have offered you know i am ready most anxious i believe i am a good nurse it is this belief that one does not die with death that is our comfort when we love does it not promise that we meet again to walk the world and see you perhaps with another see me where here wedded to another you my bride whom i call mine and you are you would be still in that horror but all things are possible women are women they swim in infidelity from wave to wave i know them willoughby do not torment yourself and me i beg you he meditated profoundly and asked her could you be such a saint among women i think i am a more than usually childish girl not to forget me oh no still to be mine i am yours to plight yourself it is done be mine beyond death married is married i think clara to dedicate your life to our love never one touch not one whisper not a thought not a dream could you it agonizes me to imagine be inviolate mine above mine before all men though i am gone true to my dust tell me give me that assurance true to my name oh i hear them his relict buzzings about lady Pattern, the widow if you knew their talk of widows shut your ears my angel but if she holds them off and keeps her path they are forced to respect her the dead husband is not the dishonoured wretch they fancied him because he was out of their way He lives in the heart of his wife. Clara, my Clara, as I live in yours, whether here or away, Whether you are a wife or widow, there is no distinction for love. I am your husband, say it eternally. I must have peace, I cannot endure the pain. Depressed, yes, I have cause to be but it has haunted me ever since we joined hands to have you to lose you is it not possible that i may be the first to die said miss middleton and lose you with the thought that you lovely as you are and the dogs of the world barking round you might is it any wonder that i have my feeling for the world this hand the thought is horrible You would be surrounded. Men are brutes. The scent of unfaithfulness excites them, overjoys them. And I, helpless, the thought is maddening. I see a ring of monkeys grinning. There is your beauty, and man's delight in desecrating. You would be worried night and day to quit my name, to— I feel the blow now. You would have no rest for them. "'Nothing to cling to without your oath.' "'An oath?' said Miss Middleton. "'It is no delusion, my love, "'when I tell you that with this thought upon me "'I see a ring of monkey faces grinning at me. "'They haunt me. "'But you do swear it, once, "'and I will never trouble you on the subject again. "'My weakness, if you like. "'You will learn that it is love.' a man's love stronger than death an oath she said and moved her lips to recall what she might have said and forgotten to what what oath that you will be true to me dead as well as living whisper it willoughby i shall be true to my vows at the altar to me me it will be to you to my soul. No heaven can be for me. I see none, only torture, unless I have your word, Clara. I trust it, I will trust it implicitly. My confidence in you is absolute. Then you need not be troubled. It is for you, my love, that you may be armed and strong when I am not by to protect you. Our views of the world are opposed, Willoughby. Consent, gratify me, swear it, say, beyond death, whisper it. I ask for nothing more. Women think the husband's grave breaks the bond, cuts the tie, sets them loose. They wed the flesh, pah! What I call on you for is nobility, the transcendent nobility of faithfulness beyond death. His widow, let them say, a saint in widowhood. My vows at the altar must suffice. You will not, Clara. I am plighted to you. Not a word, a simple promise. But you love me. I have given you the best proof of it that I can. Consider how utterly I place confidence in you i hope it is well placed i could kneel to you to worship you if you would clara kneel to heaven not to me willoughby i am i wish i were able to tell what i am i may be inconstant i do not know myself think question yourself whether i am really the person you should marry your wife should have great qualities of mind and soul I will consent to hear that I do not possess them, and abide by the verdict. "'You do, you do possess them,' Willoughby cried. "'When you know better what the world is, you will understand my anxiety. Alive I am strong to shield you from it, dead, helpless, that is all. You would be clad in mail, steel-proof, inviolable, if you would—' but try to enter into my mind, think with me, feel with me, when you have once comprehended the intensity of the love of a man like me, you will not require asking, it is the difference of the elect and the vulgar, of the ideal of love, from the coupling of the herds, we will let it drop, at least I have your hand, as long as I live I have your hand, ought i not to be satisfied i am only i see further than most men and feel more deeply and now i must write to my mother's bedside she dies lady patterne it might have been that she but she is a woman of women with a father-in-law just heaven could i have stood by her then with the same feelings of reverence A very little, my love, and everything gained for us by civilization crumbles. We fall back to the first mortar-bowl we were bruised and stirred in. My thoughts, when I take my stand to watch by her, come to this conclusion, that especially in women distinction is the thing to be aimed at. Otherwise we are a weltering human mass. Women must teach us to venerate them, we may as well be bleating and barking and bellowing. So, now enough. You have but to think a little. I must be off. It may have happened during my absence. I will write. I shall hear from you. Come and see me mount Black Norman. My respects to your father. I have no time to pay them in person. One. He took the one love's mystical number from which commonly spring multitudes but on the present occasion it was a single one and cold she watched him riding away on his gallant horse as handsome a cavalier as the world could show and the contrast of his recent language and his fine figure was a riddle that froze her blood speech so foreign to her ears unnatural in tone unmanlike even for a lover who is allowed a softer dialect set her vainly sounding for the source and drift of it she was glad of not having to encounter eyes like mr vernon whitford's on behalf of Sir Willoughby, it is to be said that his mother, without infringing on the degree of respect for his decisions and sentiments exacted by him, had talked to him of Miss Middleton, suggesting a volatility of temperament in the young lady that struck him as consentaneous with Mrs. Mount Stewart's, rogue in porcelain, and alarmed him as the independent observations of two world-wise women nor was it incumbent upon him personally to credit the volatility in order as far as he could to effect the sole insurance of his bride that he might hold the security of the policy the desire for it was in him his mother had merely tolled a warning bell that he had put in motion before clara was not a constantia but she was a woman and he had been deceived by women, as a man fostering his high ideal of them will surely be. The strain he adopted was quite natural to his passion and his theme. The language of the primitive sentiments of men is of the same expression at all times, minus the primitive colours when a modern gentleman addresses his lady." Lady Patton died in the winter season of the new year. In April Dr. Middleton had to quit Upton Park, and he had not yet found a place of residence, nor did he quite know what to do with himself in the prospect of his daughter's marriage and desertion of him. Sir Willoughby proposed to find him a house within a circuit of the neighbourhood of Patton. Moreover, he invited the Reverend Doctor and his daughter to come to Patton from Upton for a month, and make acquaintance with his aunts, the Ladies Eleanor and Isabel Patton, so that it might not be so strange to Clara to have them as her housemates after her marriage. Dr Middleton omitted to consult his daughter before accepting the invitation, and it appeared, when he did speak to her, that it should have been done but she said mildly very well papa sir willoughby had to visit the metropolis and an estate in another county whence he wrote to his betrothed daily he returned to Pattern in time to arrange for the welcome of his guests too late however to ride over to them and meanwhile during his absence miss middleton had bethought herself that she ought to have given her last days of freedom to her friends after the weeks to be passed at Patton, very few weeks were left to her and she had a wish to run to switzerland or tyrol and see the alps a quaint idea her father thought she repeated it seriously and dr middleton perceived a feminine shuttle of indecision at work in her head frightful to him, considering that they signified hesitation between the excellent library and capital wine-cellar of Pattern Hall, together with the society of that promising young scholar, Mr. Vernon Whitford, on the one side, and a career of hotels, equivalent to being rammed into monster artillery with a crowd every night, and shot off on a day's journey through space every morning, on the other you will have your travelling and your alps after the ceremony he said i think i would rather stay at home said she dr middleton rejoined i would but i'm not married yet papa as good my dear a little change of scene i thought we have accepted willoughby's invitation and he helps me to a house near you you wish to be near me papa proximate at a remove communicable why should we separate for the reason my dear that you exchange a father for a husband if i do not want to exchange to purchase you must pay my child husbands are not given for nothing no but i should have you papa should they have not yet parted us dear papa what does that mean he asked fussily he was in a gentle stew already apprehensive of a disturbance of the serenity precious to scholars by postponements of the ceremony and a prolongation of a father's worries oh the common meaning papa she said seeing how it was with him ah said he nodding and blinking gradually back to a state of composure glad to be appeased on any terms for mutability is but another name for the sex and it is the enemy of the scholar she suggested that two weeks of pattern would offer plenty of time to inspect the empty houses of the district and should be sufficient considering the claims of friends and the necessity of going the round of london shops two or three weeks he agreed hurriedly by way of compromise with that fearful prospect end of chapter 6 recording by martin geeson in hazelmere surrey